Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters Sports Bar will sponsor your next private event. Walters is located right across the street from the ballpark in Navy Yard. Register at waltersdc.com and click the Inquire Now button. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing a shot. This is past the mound and past the diving. Crawford out into center field for a base hit. Abrams is going to score, and the Nationals lead it 3-1. RBI single, Luis Garcia. The Nationals have scored a run in each inning against Luis Castillo. Now the 1-1. Swing a ground ball toward the middle. It's through. It's a base hit in center field. This is going to tie the game. Keldick streaking home and over to third is Crawford. And on at first with his third into the ball game is Julio Rodriguez. The Nationals lead is gone. It's the Nationals 3 and Seattle 3. Abbott the 1-0, swung on in high in the air to right center field. Long run, Hill back, Thomas back, warning track, wall, and this one is off the wall in play. Hill picks it up, rounding third is Ford, he's coming in to score as Colton Wong stands at second base. It's now Seattle 6 and Washington 3. One ball, two strikes, the kick, here it comes. In there, strike three call. And Laurel locked up on it, talking about it with Mark Carlson. But the game is over, and Seawald strikes out Candelario looking to end it. And the Nationals strand the bases loaded. Hello and welcome to the Nats Chat Podcast. Tim Showers back on the mound. Davey sent Al to West Palm to rehab with Robles and Edwards. Meanwhile, in Seattle, the Nats lost 8-4 to open the three-game series. They led 3-1 entering the bottom of the fourth until the Mariners then put up seven unanswered runs sprinkled through the eighth. But, and you've seen this script before, the game felt over. A ninth-inning rally by Washington that felt too little too late even in the moment. This time, Jammer Candelario was punched out by home plate umpire Mark Carlson for a very questionable strike three to end the game with the bases loaded. Later on in the show, LSU wins the College World Series. Paulo already sent back down to Rochester after just one relief appearance. Say it ain't so, Rizzo. And Robert Hassel's disappointing latest report card from MLB Pipeline. We head now to T-Mobile Park in Seattle, Washington, as we welcome in Mark Zuckerman of MastinSports.com at the site of next month's All-Star Game. But let's get right to business. The Nats got hosed on Monday night on a 1-2 count. The final pitch to Candelario that was clearly outside the zone 
How aggravated was Davey and the team afterwards? <laughs> yeah, they were aggravated, although, you know, it's certainly not the first time this has happened to them this year. I think they're almost getting to a point now where they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. And Davey could have come out and argued that one, but he's kind of played that card already, right? Just within the last week, and it's too late to make any difference. Now, look, bad call, obviously, in a big moment, but. If anyone out there thinks that that is the number one reason they lost this game, they were not paying attention to this game. The Nats did so many things wrong prior to that point. Now, to their credit, as they so often do, the boys battled. They didn't give up. They brought the tying run to the plate inexplicably with two outs in the ninth. And Luis Garcia had a great at bat to draw a walk, extend the game, get Candelario to the plate. And if there's somebody on the team that you think could maybe tie the game with one swing, he's on the short list of guys who can do that. So yeah, that's frustrating, but they didn't need to ever be in that position. If they play a cleaner game of baseball from the get-go, maybe that last at-bat doesn't happen with them trailing by four runs. Maybe the game is tied or they're down a run or something else that makes that moment even bigger than it wound up being. Let's drill in on that, the sloppy play that you alluded to, and that probably would have been low-lighted by the fifth inning. That was a three-run fifth for the Seattle Mariners. It was 3-3 three to three entering that frame. Corey Abbott already replaced Trevor Williams. The Nats needed six tonight from Williams. He only gave them four. Abbott was on the mound, and quickly the, the lead ballooned 6-3, to three, and in there was an inexplicable Dom Smith error. The wind and Abbott delivers, swinging a ground ball off the foot of Abbott, kicked toward the first base side, and Dom Smith flipped the ball to nobody. Who did he think was at the bag? And heading for second is Teoscar Hernandez. He's looking at Garcia, thinking that Garcia was going to be there. He basically threw the ball to the first base coach. Walk me through what happened there, because it seemed like the whole inning, and, and you could say even the game unraveled from there. I've never seen that one happen before, Tim. I think a lot of people have never seen a play quite like this. So first batter that Corey Abbott faces, and it's a sharp comebacker right at his feet, and he kicks it, and it, you know, very nicely caroms directly to Dom Smith, who's running in from his position at first base. So he's got the ball and plenty of time, but he just grabs it, and without really ever looking that closely to first base, makes like a little backhand shovel pass. And then realizes, oh my God, there's nobody actually covering first base. Now, the explanation from him, take it for what it's worth, and he's not trying to justify it, but he's just telling us what he saw and felt in the moment. He said it all happened real fast, obviously. It's not really a play that you're expecting to happen like that. But out of the corner of his eye, he said he saw a shadow, the shadow of a figure of a human being near first base. And he thought that must be Luis Garcia, the second baseman, who on a lot of ground balls to the right side, would naturally go over there and back him up or cover first base. On this play, Luis Garcia was moving in the opposite direction. He was already shaded up the middle and the ball off the bat's going up the middle. So he's running to think he might have a play on it up the middle. So he was nowhere near first base. So who was this mysterious shadow that Dom Smith saw out of the corner of his eye? It was the first base umpire. And so he tossed it there for a split second, thinking maybe that was a teammate when in fact it was the umpire who, last I checked, unless your name is Frank Drebin, you're not allowed to catch the ball if you're an umpire and induce a rundown. And so that ends up being really one of the ugliest looking plays you'll ever see. And it sort of set in motion that whole inning that fell apart from there. 
If you catch Mark's reference right there, kudos to you. I'm not going to explain it to you. I trust our fans can figure out who he's referring to there. The first base umpire of this evening, though, Brennan Miller. So we're less than 10 minutes in this podcast, and we've already mentioned the home plate umpire and the first base umpire. So one of those sort of nights with Corey Abbott, who was in there. Now, even though he gave up three runs in the fifth, he stayed in the game and tried to really make it through the end of the eighth, but then finally had to get pulled by Davey and Thad Ward came in to replace him. Clearly, Davey Martinez wanted to give his top guys the full night off once they were trailing. Were you surprised that Abbott stayed in in that capacity, or did you kind of connect the dots on that yourself in the moment? Yeah, you kind of understand what the situation was. We didn't fully on, you know, ask who everyone who was unavailable, but I'm fairly confident Mason Thompson was not available. I assume Hunter Harvey was not available. Maybe somebody else from that group also couldn't have gone. Now, you know, I think it's fine. You got through the sixth and the seventh with no issues from Abbott. He was kind of decent at that point. And he's been stretched out as a starter, so it's not the end of the world to try to think that he could give you a fourth inning of work. Maybe you'd be better off at that point just letting Thad Ward start the eighth inning clean. Maybe he gets you through it, although you know he's had his struggles as well here of late. It was probably too much to expect Corey Abbott to give you that much and put up zeros. Uh, especially when the first inning that he pitched was so, you know, unclean as we just described, and he needed 25 pitches to get through it. But yeah, you're losing the game. We've talked about this at times this year. There are nights when you can tell Davey Martinez is saying, "I could go for it here, or I could protect these guys' arms, save them for tomorrow, and hope that we're in a better position to win a game the next day." And I think that's the position that he felt like he was in at that point. I've replaced Trevor Williams, who went four innings. Eight hits, three runs, all earned, one walk, four Ks. Gave up two homers. In the fourth inning, Seattle was really hitting hard off him, and you felt that Davey was probably going to have to pull him after the fourth inning. What were your impressions of Williams' performance tonight that obviously was shorter than Davey was hoping for? It's shorter than everyone was hoping for, and that's the problem. You go into a game when you know your bullpen is depleted as a starting pitcher. You know, okay, my job is not just to pitch well tonight, but it's to pitch deep into this game. His last start, he made it to the seventh inning against the Cardinals, was really efficient. I'm sure he was thinking something along those same lines in this one. And you could tell early on the Mariners were making him work long at bats, long innings. He got through the third. He was already at 58. And certainly by the time you finished the fourth at 83, and they've already turned the lineup over and they're batting for a third time. You're tempting fate if you're going to send him back out there for the fifth, and maybe he faces a couple of batters, but you end up making the pitching change anyways. So that was quite disappointing. I get that Trevor Williams isn't you know, an ace, and you're not saying that he's the guy who, when he takes the mound, you're counting on six-plus innings, but if there was a night that you were hoping for more length from your starter, this was it. And he also didn't help himself with another kind of one of those inexplicable decisions that didn't make a lot of sense and wound up costing them as well. The set for Williams. He holds and throws over, and safe is the call, and so that'll be a balk. That's his third pickoff attempt, and Kelnick is awarded second base. Oh, Trevor realized that. While we're talking about the pitching staff, before the game, the Nats called up right-hander Amos Willingham, 24-year-old, and uh, he has a 1.90 ERA this season. His whip is 1.1, so 
That is an interesting move, but the corresponding move, Mark, our guy, Paul Espino, sent down already. Uh, he struggled to get the final out on Sunday in San Diego, and that was enough for the Nats. Why was Paulo the odd man out right there? Was it just a matter of, of options, or um, is there something else there? Why was it him and not maybe, let's say, Thad Ward, for example? Yeah, so for those who don't remember, Thad Ward as a Rule 5 pick, it's a little more complicated. He either has to stay on the big league roster the entire season or else be offered back to the Red Sox. And even if the Red Sox say no, then you have to put him through waivers and every other team has the opportunity to claim him and keep him on their big league roster and treat him as their own Rule 5 pick for the rest of the year. So while I'm still not convinced, I'm sure there are others who are not convinced that it's worth keeping him the entire season, that there's enough upside there in the long run to say, we're going to suffer through this, through some lumps, not you know pitch him as much, kind of stash him away in the bullpen all year. At this point, they, I guess, still believe that it is worth it, and they aren't ready to make that move and give up on it yet. So that's why it wasn't him. You could have made the move with Abbott. He also has options, so they could have done that one. What I gather is that this wasn't really about how Paolo pitched on Sunday in San Diego. This had more to do with some unfortunate timing of a few things. When they made the move a couple of days ago, when Chad Cool was DFA'd and they called Paolo Espino up from AAA, I think their number one choice at that point actually was Amos Willingham. Problem, he had just thrown two innings and I think 30 pitches in a relief appearance the night before. So he wouldn't have been available for a couple of days because of that workload. So there was more of an urgent need for somebody who'd be available right away. So they did the move with Espino and called him up, probably knowing in the back of their minds that they might then flip it a couple days later and bring in Willingham instead. It's unfortunate. You feel bad for a guy who waited all year to get called up finally, comes to San Diego, a long trip, comes into a game, didn't go as well as he would have liked, but didn't get the opportunity to get out of the inning himself, flew to Seattle with them and was at the ballpark on Monday afternoon when he got the word that now, no, by the way, don't get dressed for tonight's game. You're heading back to Rochester. That's a tough spot to be in. For better or worse, he's been through this before. I think he understands what the deal is. It's frustrating to everybody, to him especially. But once Willingham was ready and available to pitch, they decided let's make that move and send Espino back to AAA. And hopefully we will see him again. I think everybody believes we probably will see him again at some point. You just wish that it the circumstances weren't quite like this. The twists and turns of Paul Espino's career, such a very emblematic of what it could be when you're not a star baseball player and you stick it out. I mispronounced it the first time. I'm going to take a second crack at it. Amos Willingham, Mark, what do you know about the right-hander? Well, it is a name that I've heard uh, a few times over the course of the year. Actually, going back to the fall, he was included in the fall league in Arizona Despite the fact that he didn't have a lot of experience, I think he was still at single A at that point. So you start to ask around, well, who is this guy? 17th round pick out of Georgia Tech. So not an elite top prospect, but to his credit, he has worked his way up the organizational ladder. He has picked up some miles per hour on his fastball in the last year or two to the point that he's now throwing it mid to upper 90s. He's mostly a fastball guy. He throws a slider as well, but admitted that he's pretty much trying to get you out with fastballs, particularly up in the zone. So he starts the year at double A, had a zero ERA there, great strikeout to walk ratio, gets promoted to triple A about a month ago or so. And, you know, he admitted 
while the big leagues are in the back of his mind, he was not thinking in those terms at all yet. He figured, well, I'll probably be here for most of the year in Rochester, and maybe in September, the opportunity will arise. So when Matt LeCroy, the Rochester manager, called him into his office on Sunday, he didn't know what to expect. And even when he got the news, he wasn't quite sure how to react. It caught him off guard legitimately. So he calls his family. He flies in uh, from Rochester, gets to the ballpark this afternoon. His parents, who live in Georgia, made it here in time for the game. Uh, he didn't get into it, but hopefully he will make his Major League debut before this series is over. Kind of crazy turn of events. Look, they've made now five changes to their bullpen this month alone. This has been a revolving door situation. The makeup of that eight-man group is very different than it was just a few weeks ago. They're trying to find the right combination of arms that Davey can trust in some high-leverage spots in the mid-innings especially, while also protecting themselves with guys who can go multiple innings as long relievers. It's a little bit of an interesting combination they have right now, some names that we probably did not expect or didn't even know before any of this. We'll see how that all works out. It's definitely a different bullpen than we saw earlier in the year. I'll be honest. I never heard of Bird Dogs until the ad sale came across my inbox. I was told they would send me something in the mail so I could personally endorse it. It has not yet arrived. However, multiple listeners have privately told me they love Bird Dogs pants and shorts. Bird Dogs fit better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton, and I believe it based upon customer reviews. Go to birddogs.com pool and enter promo code pool, that's P-O-O-L, for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com pool for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your Bird Dogs off. They promise you. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Well, we all know what summer means. Uh, summer means baseball. Summer usually means more home runs in baseball, but uh, summer also means heat and humidity and your energy bills being rather high due to your air conditioning working extra innings. It is time to beat the heat with Window Nation's summer sale. Save thousands of dollars with an outstanding offer. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years plus Window Nation will give you two free windows for every two windows that you buy. All you have to do is call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Increase the value of your home by up to $12,000. Hey, make your neighbors jealous. Who doesn't want to do that? Again, the Window Nation summer sale. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years plus Two free windows for every two windows that you buy. And this goes for any style of window from Window Nation. 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Have you ever heard of Larry June? Decent chance you haven't. But if you do know of this 32-year-old rapper that was born in San Francisco on April 8, 1991, then game time is the place for you. Get tickets to his show on Tuesday, June 27th at the Fillmore in Silver Spring, right by the Metro. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. 
Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Pitch swung on, hit in the air to deep left field. This is toward the corner, way back, going, going, and gone, goodbye! Lane Thomas, bang, zoom, he goes on the third pitch of the game with a leadoff home run. Instant offense, his team leading 14th home run of the season for Thomas. He leads the club and runs batted in with 40 as well. And you have to like that. It's the Nationals one and the Mariners nothing. Lane Thomas hit his 14th homer and had two hits on the evening. 90 hits on the season. That's good for fifth in the National League. It's starting to feel like Lane Thomas is not only definitely going to be going to Seattle, but like he deserves to be back in Seattle in two weeks, putting up some very sneaky, strong numbers so far. Yeah, and this has been going on for almost two months now. So I think that whole idea of, oh, well, he's just really streaky and he can't maintain it month to month. I don't think we have to think of it in those terms so much. This is maybe who he is becoming. I looked at his numbers since May 1st, which are obviously outstanding, but baseball reference shows you what that equates to over 162 game pace. Check out these numbers. Since May 1st, he's on a full season equivalent of 126 runs, 204 hits, 49 doubles, 42 homers, 94 RBI, 16 stolen bases, and a 951 OPS. And the only reason that number is not a little higher is that he doesn't draw a ton of walks, so his on-base percentage isn't super high. But, I mean, you're talking major MVP caliber numbers there from a guy over a two-month stretch. Now, of course, it's not the same. You know, you do that over about 50 games. It's very different than doing that over 162 but it's been so encouraging to see him sustain this kind of production. He's been great in the first inning, as Al has talked about over and over again. He homered right off the bat in this game against Luis Castillo to set a good tone for the night. It's uh, too bad that didn't you know, ultimately help them win a game. But boy, he is playing really well, and he is tearing the cover off the ball, it seems like, every single night. Yes, Lane Thomas will be back in Seattle, really starting to feel like, in two weeks for the All-Star game. Joey Manessis, by the way, he's sixth in the National League in hits, so the Nats fifth and sixth in that category. We talked about Dom Smith defensively. He did homer and had a single in the ninth inning. But, Mark, getting a lot of questions about this on Twitter, and I have to say I agree with some of these listeners while we're talking about first base. If you look at Matt Adams, he has 11 home runs and an OPS well above 850 this season, he did hit well in spring training as well, for whatever all that's worth. There is a legitimate argument to be made that they should bring up Matt Adams, see if he can hit a few home runs right before the trade deadline, and maybe convince a contender to trade for him. Tell me why that is correct, incorrect. Where do you stand on the Matt Adams? Well, I think the issue would be they're not going to call him up to put him on the bench. If they had that opportunity in the spring training, And in the organization's mind, they needed more versatility out of that spot. And that's why Michael Chavis has held that position since opening day, even though Chavis does not play very much. When he does play, he has the ability to play a bunch of different positions. He is the guy they usually go to if they're going to pinch run. So there's that part of it. So if you make the move, it's going to be for him to play every day, either at first base or at DH. And whether you agree with it or not, they are sticking with Dom Smith as their everyday first baseman, you know, aside from the occasional day off. 
I think they believe that defense, this game notwithstanding, <laughs> is more important there than what they're losing offensively by having him out there. You also don't know. Matt Adams hasn't really been in the big leagues in like three years now. So you don't know how it's going to translate if he comes up. You would love to think that he could come up here and provide the kind of power threat that they desperately could use, but you don't really know if that's going to be the case. So I don't see a scenario, I haven't really seen a scenario since opening day in which both Dominic Smith and Matt Adams are on the big league roster. So for it to happen, my guess is that Dom Smith would have to be off the roster for whatever reason that is, injury or otherwise. Okay, but let's drill in on the Michael Chavis thing that you brought up because you said he doesn't play at all, really. So I know that the trade markets have changed over the years. And like in the year 2000, a guy like Matt Adams is much more valuable than he is in this current trade market. But there is a scenario where someone would maybe give up something for a Matt Adams, I feel like, in a way that Michael Chavis is just clearly not going to be dealt. So I do feel like that should be thrown into the mix more that it is July, August 1 is coming up. Does that change anything, or do you still think Chavis gets denied because he can theoretically play four positions? Look, I get the thinking there, but I think you make a good point. In 2023, that may not have the same value as it used to. Nobody pinch hits anymore. Are you really looking for that big, burly-chested, left-handed bat off the bench that Davey Johnson used to love to have? Matt Stairs? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, Matt, it's the Matt Stairs idea. And there just aren't many of those guys anymore, and I feel like there's not the same role for those players as there used to be. Maybe there should be. Maybe that would make a difference, but it feels like especially with the National League using the DH that there's just less opportunities to do something like that. And I think also, look, you want to believe that he could have some trade value if he had a good month up here. But the rest of baseball knows who Matt Adams is. And Lord knows 29 other teams have had the opportunity to sign him in the last three years. And none of them have. The only one that did was the Nationals. And remember, when he didn't make the opening day roster, he took a few days to see if there was any interest in him elsewhere. If there was a job for him in the big leagues, there wasn't. Now, maybe he deserves a shot, but the rest of the baseball world seems to be saying, no, we don't think you're a big leaguer anymore. And so his best hope of making it back is probably just to wait this out and believe that if anything happened to Dom Smith with the Nationals, then they would uh, pave the way for him to come back up here. All right, stick it with the minors, but on a completely different end of the spectrum. MLB Pipeline came out with their latest top 100 prospects on Sunday. James Wood all the way up to number six. But the biggest change involved the Nats as Robert Hassel III, outfielder currently in A Harrisburg, dropped from number 48 to number 99. Mark, I know that these lists are artificial and you know we're just middle of the season here. But do you take any stock whatsoever in that? Any reaction, anything you're hearing about Hassel? Well, I think it is confirmation of what you kind of sensed, which is that he's just not having the kind of year that they thought he would. Now, he had a big year last year, broke out, and then broke his hammock bone in his wrist and was playing through it late during the season. And then it snapped on him completely in the fall league. And he hasn't fully maybe come back from that. Remember, he missed some time. He started the season a little late has started to get it together. He is hitting for some average, but he's not hitting for power. And I think that is probably the number one reason that he's dropping on these lists is that if you're going to be a top 50 prospect in the majors, they probably want to believe that you are going to hit both for average and for power. And at the moment, he looks like a high average hitter, not a power hitter. Now, 
not uncommon for guys coming back from that injury. It sometimes takes a while for that all to come back. I don't think it means that he's off the Nationals' radar or that we aren't going to see him maybe even before the end of this season or certainly next year, and that he can't be an important part of their outfield moving forward. But it shows that he does still need to prove some things before that happens. And when the season began, he probably looked like the most advanced of their prospects, the closest to the big league, certainly of the guys they got in that trade. What James Wood has done so far this year, he's probably moved ahead of him to the point now that if they get to a point that the Nats say, hey, we're ready to call one of these kids up to play the outfield, Wood probably gets that call before Hassel now. Over to Omaha, College World Series. LSU wins. They routed Florida 18-4 to to take the national championship. Paul Skeens made it to the bullpen, but never to the actual mound. The Tigers didn't need him, though. Dylan Cruz, four hits. Mark, is this the most attention you can ever remember the event drawing? Yeah. I mean, since I've had any interest in it, I remember as a kid sometimes tuning it in and thought it was interesting. I maybe remember vaguely watching Roger Clemens pitch for Texas way back in the day, and that was a big deal. But it was such an interesting and cool convergence of events that you would have probably the top three players in the draft competing on Monday night for a national championship. And I know Skeens didn't get into the game, but he was certainly part of the narrative there. It looked like every time I had it on on my screen, kind of watching it throughout the game, look, every, every time I looked up, ESPN was cutting to a shot of Skeens either pacing in the dugout or in the tunnel or ultimately in the bullpen. So he was on everybody's mind. It was a cool thing to see that come together. It's too bad it wasn't a more competitive game because that really would have been something if it was close late and all the hand-wringing over, do you let Paul Skeens come back on short rest, try to close out the game, you know, a la Max Scherzer or Steven Strasburg? I mean, I was having those images in my head, and I'm sure that Mike Rizzo and Ben Charrington of the Pirates were more than happy to not see him pitch in that game. They also were probably very happy to see Dylan Cruz do well. I don't know who the Nats are going to end up drafting. I'm pretty sure it's going to be one of those two. I don't think it's going to be Wyatt Langford of Florida, although he has made a case for himself to be in consideration for it. I can tell you that from talking to people, the Nationals themselves don't really know yet who they're taking, in part because they don't know who the Pirates are taking, but also because they have not sat down and formally had their meetings where they say, okay, let's make our draft board. I'm sure each individual scout and front office uh, personnel has in their mind who they believe is number one, but they will ultimately all sit down in a room, hash it out, and come to some kind of consensus. I would think Mike Rizzo's opinion probably matters a little more than anyone else's when it comes to that. But it's a fascinating decision and discussion to have of where do you go, how do you want to rank them. All I know is this, in all likelihood, they're going to end up with an elite prospect, one who's probably going to be very close to big league ready, and oh, by the way, is also a national champion. That's pretty cool and pretty rare to be the case. This is an impossible question to answer in a concise manner because I know MLB gets so complicated when it comes to money and draft slots. But is there a chance where Pittsburgh passes on either of these stars simply because of money? Is that still an element that exists in the MLB draft or has that been changed since the J.D. Drew days, for example? Yeah. So it has changed and you can no longer just give an unlimited amount. You can't give a big league contract anymore, which is what the Nats did, remember, with Strasburg and Harper, why they were in big league camp right away from day one. They had major league deals on the 40-man roster. That's not allowed anymore. Teams are allotted a draft pool 
total amount of money you can spend on all your picks. And then there are suggested slot amounts for each pick based on where they're taken. Now, what you can do, and this is could be the wrench that's thrown into all this, and there has been legitimate speculation about this possibility, that the pirates, rather than spending the bulk of their allotment on one of those two guys as their number one pick, would they maybe take one of the high school outfielders who doesn't cost as much potentially, which would then give them more money to spend on the second round, third round, fourth round picks. You still have your limited pool in total, but you could disperse it a little more evenly and not devote the majority of it to your number one pick. If those high schoolers are really seen as as top of prospects as the big boys from college are, and a lot of people believe that in any other year, those guys might be number one picks, then maybe they would go that route, in which case Mike Rizzo and Chris Klein and company now have their choice of Cruz or Skeens. I think there's a chance that happens. Probably not. I think it's still the odds on favorite is that the Pirates take one of the two LSU guys more likely cruise because of the more of a sure thing as an outfielder than a pitcher. But the baseball world was abuzz by what Paul Skeens did over the last month in the NCAA tournament. And it's got to be awfully tempting for anybody to look at that and say, that's a star number one pitcher. There's going to be big league ready here very soon. And how hard is it to find a guy like that elsewhere? If you have the ability to draft him, why wouldn't you take him? So it's entirely possible that the Pirates take Skeens, the Nats end up with Cruz. It's entirely possible that they take Cruz, the Nats end up with Skeens, or chance that they go off the board and now the Nats have to make that decision. And that's a fascinating decision on their part if it comes down to it. Yeah, Skeens was all that was advertised in June. Before we go, Mark, I hear a listener tracked you down in Seattle. Yeah, another great example of how far our reach is. We've heard from fans in so many cities and so many countries as well. And I heard from another one here in Seattle, Kurt Stahl, lifelong DC resident, big Nats fan, has listened to us for years and used to listen to us on his commute to work in DC. He moved to Seattle about six months ago, was excited to see they were on the schedule to come here this year and was at Monday's game sporting his gear, still listens to the podcast. He said it's a little trickier now because his commute is not as long in Seattle as it was in DC. And I told him how, as we were formulating this podcast, one of the things you and I and Al discussed was try to make it a length that would fit in with a typical commute. Well, we were thinking about a DC typical commute, not necessarily other cities. So for any of you out there who listen to it on your way to work and you don't live in DC, our apologies if it's too long, but that's the reason for it is that we generally want it to fit within somebody's commute to work if you live in the DC area. But it was great to meet Kurt. Sure, he's upset he didn't get to see a win, but it was very nice to meet him. And and once again, it just it's so cool every time I hear from someone to understand how wide our reach is and how great it is that we have this medium now that allows you not just to talk to people who live in the immediate area, but people who literally live throughout the world. As a reminder to all of you listening, if you're a big fan of a situation like Kurt was, email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. So that's great. Kurt, thanks for making the effort to see Mark out west. I got to throw one more little thing out there. This is a great line from the great Larry Stone columnist for the Seattle Times who noted this. I can't believe I didn't pick up on it myself. The pitchers of record in Monday night's game, Tim, were Abbott and Castillo. Oh! So who who's on first? It's actually France. 
Where? No, I don't know. He's on third. Well, I think you just came up with our closing clip for tonight's show. So, All right. Uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Larry Stone. Next up, Tuesday night in Seattle, Jake Irvin opposite another rookie in right-hander Brian Wu. First pitch at 9.40 p.m. The final Nats game of the season that begins after 8.15 p.m. Eastern. All radio highlights are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Theme music, as always, by Tim Newmark. Buy a t-shirt. Plenty available. Visit our website, natschatpodcast.com. Click on the merch button, and you'll be good to go from there. Will Al be back for our next episode? You'll just have to stay tuned and find out. Enjoy your day, everyone. On the St. Louis team, we have uh, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis I'm, team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. Do you know the fellas' names? Yes. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean, the fellas' name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you who is on first. I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who is on first? Have you got a first baseman on first? Certainly. Then who's playing first? Absolutely. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.